Father, we come before you as individuals who have set aside this time this morning specifically to worship you, the King. We may give sacrifices of our money this morning. We may be giving our time serving in children's or helping to park cars. We may be simply giving of ourselves to sing. But Father, we do this from our heart because we worship you who made a much greater sacrifice for us. We acknowledge salvation in the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we come before you as individuals who want to know more of you. So we look into your word and we sing to you. So we ask that you would unveil our eyes, help us to understand more of your nature and character. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are one fortunate church to have that kind of worship. That is really great. Um, if you've been following along in the Revelation study as we've been doing it over the last six weeks, you know that there's uh, going to be notes up here in the front of the podium in case uh, you didn't get the fill in the blanks as we work through. But also the answers will be up on the screen again this morning to uh, help you stay, stay uh, with the study as we move along, fill those blanks in. Next week, um, we make what I would consider a quantum leap from things that are, which Jesus instructed John to write about. He said, write down the things that you see, write down the things that are, which are the letters to the churches, and then he said, write down the things that will be, the future things. And that's where we step next week, is into the future things, the things that Revelation is known for to the world. The mysteries of understanding this book is our privilege. And so we're going to take it a piece at a time, week by week, working our way through it from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22, helping us along the journey to understand what Jesus wants to say to his church. This morning I'm going to take you back to Revelation chapter 3, though, to finish up the last letter um, to the seven churches. And this particular letter is to a church called the church at Laodicea. In order to set it up, I want to ask you to just step with me mentally back to a time when Jesus still walked the earth physically. It would have been about 30 A.D., 31 A.D., somewhere in there. His ministry was underway, and he had, at this point, not been rejected by people. He was at the peak of his attention getting sermon teaching, and there was a message that took place which in churchdom, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with it, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this particular location on this mountainside, Jesus was teaching to thousands of people. And he was far into the message when he stopped and just did a timeout and said, I gotta ask you guys something. If you say you're my followers, why don't you do what you say you're going to do? As a matter of fact, this is the way he framed it. This comes from Luke 6:46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Can you imagine if I stopped in the middle of a teaching and said, time out, okay. You guys aren't getting it. Why do you say you're believers but you don't really live like it? Yeah, that would set you back, wouldn't it? Okay. These were the followers who walked with Jesus every day. 
These are people who traveled great distances. They stopped at Kentucky Fried Chicken to pick up a picnic lunch on the way to the mount. They got the kids in the chariot. They went great distance. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And yet, when they arrive, they hear him challenge their walk with him. Now, that would set you back on your heels a little bit. And he didn't just stop there. I want you to understand this word, Lord, that we use so freely in church. So look at the definition for the word Lord. It's the word kurios. means supremacy, supreme in authority, God, master. So Jesus says this, why do you say kurios, kurios, if you don't mean it? When you say Lord, Lord in scripture, when you read it twice, it means, I believe it. Fervency, I've got conviction. This is the real thing. So Jesus is saying, do you really have conviction? Now, if the audience up till this point believed that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the crowd, because he often went after the legal teachers, they knew that this next verse was meant specifically for Christ followers. Luke recorded the Sermon on the Mount, but so did Matthew. This next verse comes from Matthew. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, curios, curios, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That's one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. It causes you to say, whoa, wait. If I said, curious, curious, Lord, Lord, how does that mean I'm not in? Because we're told that if you confess with your mouth that Lord is Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, right? That's what Scripture says. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God resurrected him from the dead, you will be saved. And so Jesus has got his Christ followers in the room saying, you guys are playing church. And I'm telling you, not everyone who says curios, curios is in. See, this verse here is a description of self-deception. And that's what you're going to find about the church at Laodicea this morning. They were involved in self-deception to the degree that it shocked them. What? How could, what do you mean? And that's the setting for the letter to the people at Laodicea. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. If you don't own a Bible, you might find one in the pew rack in front of you so you can follow along that way. Historically, here's what we know about this church, archaeologically. I know some of you have traveled there. You've actually been able to see the setting for this, so this will have a special meaning to you. This particular church that Jesus is talking to here is what we would call an apostate church, a church that is full of false teaching. And Jesus said, in the last days, apostasy will be on the increase so that among the generation that we live in, there will be much false teaching apostasy will be on the increase. Laodicea, archaeologically, this is what we know about it. It was part of a tri-city area. If you think of Bay City, Saginaw, Flint, you think of a tri-city area within our state. 
This particular town was part of a tri-city of Hierapolis and Colossae. Paul wrote specifically to the people at Colossae, the book of Colossians in your New Testament. The people at Hierapolis also had a very prosperous church, but for some reason, Jesus singled out this particular church to write to. What do we know about their economy? They had a very successful medical school in Laodicea. As a matter of fact, they were known around the European world for their eye ointment, like a salve, and ear ointment. They actually had protected the production process like we might think of a copyright today. And so when they produced this ointment and put it into powder form, they would ship it out to other countries who needed it to treat eye ailments. They're also known to be a banking center. Archaeologically, they found that many people traveled there to put investments in the banks at Laodicea. Other individuals traveled there to draw money out, to borrow money. So they were known for their banking industry. Third thing they were known for, they produced a cool piece of wool. They raised specifically black sheep. Black sheep that glistened so much when you could see them on the hillside at a distance, it would have a velvety appearance to it. As a matter of fact, there's evidence that the Caesars at Rome ordered this wool to be sent to Rome to make some of their clothing out of because it was so highly sought after. So we've got people who are pretty prosperous in this particular setting. They've got uh, uh, a setting in which they're the banking industry and they're a clothing industry and they're known for their medical school. So they have a lot of reason to have pride. One more detail that you need to know that's unique to this particular setting. In this particular setting, they were built on a plateau, 1,200 feet or so above a valley floor. Now Hierapolis and Colossae were down on the valley floor. And something unique about Hierapolis is that they had warm water springs, actually hot mineral baths. So people on their vacation would travel to Hierapolis to take a bath in this mineral water. Colossae was known for its very fresh stream water, a very unique setting in which these towns all played off from each other. Because of this, Laodicea had to pipe their water in because they were built up on a plateau. They had to get their water from those other two villages. That plays into this particular passage as you're about to see. So let's start off on Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Well, those are three fairly unusual titles for Jesus, aren't they? The amen, the faithful and true, the beginning of creation of God. The amen is a Hebrew word. We use it a lot in our language today when we close a prayer. What are we saying when we say amen? Amen is the actual word. And it means this, confirmation. I confirm that what was just said is true. So in this particular setting, Jesus is saying, I am the amen. You find it in the King James Version of the Bible where it says verily, verily, or in the new um, in translations called the NIV or the ones that we use in the church today, the NASB, where it says truly, truly. The actual Greek for that is amen, amen, confirmed, confirmed. So what Jesus is saying here is, I am the last word. I am the emphasis. We use it when we believe in something. We say amen. Right, Jerry? Amen. amen. All right. It's the confirmation saying we agree with what was just said. 
So the next thing Jesus says is, I'm the faithful and true witness. We've looked at that before. What is he saying? I am the final word. Everything I say is the truth and nothing but the truth. You can depend upon it. So anybody going beyond the words of Jesus are actually adding to his truth, which he said is the final truth. So when Revelation ends and it says, don't let anybody add to anything that's written in this book or they'll be cursed, it's confirmation of what Jesus just said. I am the final word. And then he uses a phrase that plays directly into this church at Laodicea and you find it popping up all over our country today. He says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Now, if you happen to have an NIV, you're gonna feel like I'm picking on the NIV translation of the Bible, and especially in the last couple weeks because I've corrected a couple things. I'm gonna do it again, and here's the reason why. In the NIV, it actually says the ruler of God's creation. I don't doubt that for a minute. That's not in contest. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. But the literal Greek interpretation is here accurately the beginning of God's creation. So you'd have to say, what? What? Jesus is God. How can he have a beginning? How can that be literally in Greek, the beginning of God's creation? And false teachers use that particular phrase all the time to try and emphasize their point, to lead people astray. Anybody in the room familiar with Christopher Hitchens? Christopher Hitchens is an author. He's a Universalist Unitarian. I listened to an interview with him this week. He said that exact same thing, that Jesus is a created being. In the Universalist Unitarian Church, that is what they are teaching their people, that Jesus is not God. He was just a good man. So because he was a good man, he isn't speaking with the authority of God when he speaks. So therefore, it calls into question everything that's written in Scripture. But if Jesus is saying, wait, there's no confusion here, and I'm going to show you why there's no confusion. In the Greek, this is what it literally says. Look at the word on the screen, RK. First it says a commencement, which means a beginning. And so it can mean that. But in this case, this is what it means. Chief in order, time, place, or rank. At the beginning, first in power, principality and rule. There's only one other place that that particular word is used in all of scripture, and it's in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In the arche, the word was with God, and the word is God. Further on in that same chapter, John goes on to say, nothing was made without him, and by him everything was made. Let me emphasize my point one further. Genesis 1.26, God speaking. This is what he says. Let us, plural, make man in our image, plural, according to our likeness, plural. So Jesus is the source of God's creation. He's the origin, the starting point at which it all came to be. It's not that he's a created being, but he's the authority source by which it happened. But not only the old creation, not only stars, planets, galaxies, earth, streams, mountains, but also the new creation, the source of the new beginning. 
What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are part of a new world that Jesus is bringing into being. You think our generation is green? Jesus is the ultimate recycler. He's beginning everything new. That's what he said to his mother. Behold, I make all things new. He's the beginning of a whole new creation. That's why John writes about a new heaven and a new earth. Old things will be passing away. So there's a whole new creation that's coming. So here's what this church needs. This church needs faithful and true truth from the one who speaks the whole truth and nothing but the truth and the one who is the beginning of creation. Why did they need to know that? That's what you're about to find out. Let's see what Jesus sees in this particular church in verse 15. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you've been in on all seven of the studies so far, you understand that Jesus had something commendable to say to every single church he's spoken to so far, except this church. Nothing positive to say to them, zero. And so he launches right into his approach with them saying, this is threatening and I want you to hear me, but you make me so sick I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's the word that's literally used here. I talked with some friends after the service last week after 11 o'clock and they asked me the question, what happens in a church? How does it turn like that? Because you'd have to look at the church at Laodicea and say, well, they didn't start out lukewarm. How did they become lukewarm? And I believe it all hinges on leadership and what is being taught. And gradually, they compromised the truth. How do I know they compromised it? I'm gonna to read to you from the book of Colossians in just a moment. I wanna set this up so you understand what I speculate is going on here. Paul wrote a book, a letter, to the church at Colossae. Remember, I talked to you about three cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. In Colossae, there was a false teaching that crept in from the Gnostics, and this is what they said. Jesus was a man, a good man, but a man, not God. He's just one of the paths to God. Now, I want you to hear this instruction that Paul gave to them from Colossians 4.16. Chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Why did he instruct them to take what he had written and send it on to the people at Laodicea? This is what Paul emphasized in chapter 1 of verse 15. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Would you say Paul put an exclamation point on the end of that? He's saying, do you get it? Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Now, this took place at this little town in Colossae, and he said, 
after you've read it, send it on to the people at Laodicea. Why? Because Gnosticism had made its way in here. The denial of Jesus as the authority, as God. And it takes away all passion in a church. If you take away the authority of Jesus as God, you got nothing. There's no salvation message. There's no redemption whatsoever. So this is why you find him chastising them and saying, you make me sick. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It's very graphic language, isn't it, from Jesus? This is the group that he would be saying, not everyone who says, curios, curios, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're looking at pretend Christians. Here's why Jesus used that illustration. I told you at Hierapolis, people went to the mineral baths and soaked in the water to heal their ailments. It's a very good feeling to sit in a hot bath of water prior to the days when we have hot tubs. So people took their vacations to actually go to Hierapolis. They also went to Colossae because it was known for its fresh stream water. Both of those cities at Colossae and Hierapolis sent their water onto Laodicea through aqueducts. By the time it made it to Laodicea, the water was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. And it was putrid to the taste. They actually had to treat their water. You ever had anybody hand you a glass of warm water? I remember one time distinctly, I was really hot, and I asked my son Adam to go in the house and get me a drink of water. And he thought it was so funny to come out and bring me a glass of hot water. <laughs> it's like, oh, yuck. It's not what I wanted. That's why Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're, yuck. I want to spit you out of my mouth. I wish that you were hot or cold. I can identify spiritually hot people from a long distance away. I'll bet you can too. I've come up with a list of four things that I identify by spiritually hot people or spiritually hot churches. Look at the list here. Number one, they seize the opportunities for advancing the kingdom. Number two, they have a passion for understanding more of God's word. Number three, a sensitivity to worship in a variety of forms. Not just music. Not just working with the children downstairs. Not just giving. Serving in the parking lot. Serving at missions. They have a passion for serving and for worship. And number four, they maintain an imagery of what it means to have salvation in Christ. Never forgetting what it means to belong to Jesus. Likewise, it's easy to identify people who are spiritually cold, isn't it? Let me give you my list that I came up with. There are those who rejected Jesus. Number one, they have no spiritual response, no pulse whatsoever. There's no interest in Christ or the things of God. His word and his church have no impact on them. They make no pretense about it. And this is the cool thing about people who are spiritually cold. They're not hypocrites. If they don't like what you're saying, you stop talking about Jesus all the time. I mean, give me a break. You're like so hard to be around. They're not hypocrites, are they? Those are spiritually cold people. But the lukewarm individuals, they're really hard to identify. And they don't fit into either category. Let me give you my description of them. They attend church and they don't openly reject the gospel. But privately, they reject the concept of a God who would put any kinds of constraints on their life, the God of Scripture. This is a phrase that I believe I've coined. They believe in the God of affirmation. 
if God will affirm me in my choices, then I'm in. But this stuff in here, not sure I can buy into that. So those are lukewarm individuals who say, Jesus is really not God because then I have to believe everything that he said. And that makes me uncomfortable. What did Paul say when he wrote to Timothy about individuals like this? 2 Timothy 3.5, they hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Why? Because they nauseate Christ. And they're like icicles. They're harder than spiritual icicles. Because many times, it takes the king of kings to come and say, I'm telling you the truth. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is getting into the kingdom of heaven. You've got pretenders, and that's what's going on here. What creates this condition is compromise. We call it today being politically correct. You familiar with that term? We'll be very PC about this because we don't want to offend anyone. And it turns a church into a religious country club. And there's a requirement for grace, obviously, that we would extend the grace of Christ to everyone. But when you confront situations like this, Jesus is very emphatic when it has to do with his church in which he says, if you go on like this, I have to spit you out because you're of no use. You're not advancing the kingdom speaking to a church corporately, but I believe also speaking to individuals. It causes people to step back and say, where do I really stand? So verse 17, he follows it up saying this, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, he's about to give them a solution. These are individuals who would walk up to you with a church budget report and say, look at how good we're doing. Look at all the income. But not realize they're broke. Eviction is coming. So Jesus, who speaks the whole truth, even though it hurts, he says there's something wrong with your self-image. There's something that's causing you to have a self-deception. And it has disastrous consequences. If you don't mind writing in your own Bible, I'm going to encourage you to circle in that last verse, you say versus you are. You say this, but you are this. Why the difference in the two views? Because Jesus measures us by his standards of what he wants the church to be. You say measures yourself by the standards of the world. You say you're wealthy. You say you've got all these things. But this is what you really look like. So Jesus gives this church some advice. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here's the cool thing about our God. He could have instantly judged this church. Said, forget it, you're out. I closed the door, you're out of business. What does he do? He comes back to them and says, here's what I want you to do. And he plays on the three things from their own city. Notice this, buy from me gold refined by fire. Represents the priceless riches of true salvation. 
Gold, my gold, not your money and your banking system. But go through the gold refinement process with me. Buy from me some white garments. What were they known for? Beautiful black wool. You see the sheep on the hillside. Your clothing is worth nothing. Get the white garments that come from me. What was the third thing he said to them? Buy from me eye salve ointment. Medicine for your eyes. They're medical university. See, we've got individuals here who are, Jesus is saying, you're not only broke, you're walking around buck naked and you're blind on top of that. In Scripture, when you see someone without clothing, it's an era of disgrace. And Jesus is saying, I will keep clothing on you. I will give you clothing. I will give you gold. I will give you eyes to see, spiritual eyes. Honestly, this is just Mark talking. The hardest thing for me in my Christian life is to go to God the Father and say, um, I know you want me to be like this, but it's so hard to ask for that because what he has to do to us in the process to make us like he wants us to be. You understand that if you say, God, I want to be more gracious, sometimes the things that he has to do to make you more gracious, if I want to be more patient, he teaches patience. It's like, I want to be patient, God, but please don't hurt me, okay? <laughs> you understand, it's really hard to say, God, this is what I want. This is how I know I need to be. First, it requires you being honest with yourself and saying, God, will you conform me to your image? So next we come to what I consider to be one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Look with me at Revelation 19. 319, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Despite all their flaws and terrible weaknesses, I love you. I want the best for you. Those whom I love, not just the elect, those who are lost. John 316 tells us that. I love everyone and I want them to repent. So reprove here literally means to expose in order to bring conviction. If you're gonna reprove someone, you're gonna expose what's going on, not to shame them, but to bring conviction. And then he says, I'm gonna discipline you. And discipline represents punishment, but punishment with a purpose, the purpose of conforming. Why? Because I love you. Be zealous and repent. I've looked for a long time for a good definition for this word repent. You see it on posters out in Los Angeles and in movies. Repent and turn for the end of the day, the world is near. What does repent actually mean? This quote I found from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I think it's accurate. Here's repentance. Repentance means that you realize that you are guilty in the presence of God, that you realize this thing called sin is in you. You long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. So Jesus comes with verse 20, and he uses one that's familiar to everybody who's grown up in church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You understand? 
this door that he's knocking on. In evangelical circles, we apply it to individuals. Jesus is speaking to his church. He's on the outside of his own church saying, I'd like to come in, but you gotta repent first. You gotta get your act together. And what does he say he wants to do? I will come in and dine with him. First, you have to open the door. You ever seen the painting by Holman Hunt that has Jesus depicted outside a Mediterranean home with a wooden door? If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw it. Jesus is knocking at a door of a home waiting to come in. Next time you see that painting, look very closely at it, and you'll see there's no door handle on the door. Holman Hunt did that intentionally. People need to open the door from the inside to let Jesus in. And if you let him in, he says, I'm going to come in and we're going to hang out together. We're going to dine together. In ancient times, when people sat down and ate together, it was speaking of intimacy and fellowship. Have you ever invited somebody that you don't get along with to go out to dinner with you? No. You call up your friends, your family members, if your family members are your friends, and you say, let's go eat. Let's go spend some time together. So Jesus is saying, I want to be with you. I'm outside asking to come in, but I want you to repent. I want you to get things right with me first, and then I'll come in and hang out with you. Now, here's the ultimate promise of all the seven churches we've looked at so far. We've seen a lot of promises. Jesus is saying, you get this, 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 and this. There's a big list. We're going to review it next week. But here, he makes the ultimate promise to us. Verse 21, he who overcomes I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Climax of the promises. Up till now, we've been told what we get in eternity and that if we're a nakao, eternity is ours. But do you notice that Jesus called himself an overcomer? I also, nikao. What's the nikao? The conqueror from the word Nike, remember? The one who's victorious. I'm the conqueror. Jesus says, I am the conqueror. I also overcame. And what did he do when he overcame? Jesus says that he's offering us his throne. And he makes a very important distinction. Look with me up on the screen at Hebrews 12.2. What happened when Jesus nikao? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, crucified, dead, resurrected, 40 days later, ascends into heaven. He's the overcomer, and he sits down at the throne of God. This is God's throne Jesus is speaking of here. He promised us his throne. You see the difference in the verse? I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. God's throne is sovereign over the universe. He rules over everything. Jesus' throne is the throne of David. In this context, what this is referring to is the rule over the thousand-year reign over the nations here on planet Earth. And Jesus is inviting you to reign with him, to sit alongside of him. That is amazing. Do you understand that? 
I don't. That we get to have eternity in heaven with him is amazing enough. We get to sit next to the throne of God. I can't comprehend that. It wasn't enough that he left heaven to buy us back. But he lets us sit alongside him. It's overwhelming. Judgment is indeed coming to this world. Would you agree? It will happen. But here's the interesting point. It comes to the house of God first. It starts with the church. So he's saying very specifically, get your act together because what's about to come is beyond human comprehension. So much so that people try so hard to understand the book of Revelation from chapters 4 to 22 to say, what's going on here? This is beyond our comprehension. And Jesus is saying to his church whom he loves, get your act together. Be identified with me. Be an overcomer so that you're not outside saying, wait, I said Lord, Lord. I mean, I know I said the words. Didn't I prophesy in your name? Can you imagine the shock on that day? This is not meant to scare you. It's meant to teach the word of God. There are many people in churches all over the world who will be shocked that the kingdom of heaven was not a door that was open to them but closed because they didn't live for Christ. What did he say? Those who do the will of my Father. That's his command. That's hard stuff. That's really hard for a church to hear because that's why it's a scary verse. It makes you step back and say, wow, am I guilty of that? Do I do this curious, curious thing? Lord, Lord, but not really mean it? That's between you and God. You get to evaluate that. But this is what he said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. A stern warning and a profound promise. You get to rule. So next time you worship, worship fully as conquerors, okay? Let's pray together. Father, I'd be the first to confess that I can't even get my mind around the concept of reigning with you. How big is that throne? It's just, man. But the reality is, you promised it in your word. You have graciously and abundantly offered salvation to all. So as many as profess your name and believe that you were resurrected from the dead, you said you have brought them into the kingdom. Father, I ask for the men and women in this room that you help us to really evaluate ourselves to know whether or not we own it or if we're just faking it. God, I ask that this day would not go on without every person in this room evaluating their position with you. For those who name the name of Christ and walk faithfully with you, Father, help us to be so bold that we never shrink away or hesitate from declaring the truth. 
You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You were not created. You are the source of creation and that you welcome us lovingly into your eternity. It's those promises that we cling to and we trust in them in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King. Amen. Have a great week.